Welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. I'm Rick O'Shea. Afric O'Connell is with me. Given that this is our final programme before the summer, what would you recommend for a good summer read? Last summer, I read Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid and I absolutely devoured it. I think everyone should read it. Yeah, I think the only time I escaped Dublin last year, I, I found Nora Ephron's Heartburn, which I'd never read yes. before, despite loving Nora Ephron so much. So maybe people should, should have a go at that. It is our final show before the summer. We'll have more recommendations for summer reads from our recent book clubs for you coming up but first As if finally seeing the long-awaited follow-up to Bad Day in Blackrock in print wasn't enough, Kevin Power penned an article for the Irish Times in which he described the years between his debut and his follow-up in unvarnished detail Failure, he says, forces you to see clearly this is the one thing that can be said in its favour. Well, now with White City on actual bookshelves, I'm pleased to say that Kevin Power is joining us on the book show. Kevin, welcome. Hi, Rick. How are you? How are you is a far more important question. Where is your head this week? <laughs> um, it, it's strangely empty. Um, I wonder if that's not because I've kind of, <clears throat> I have, as you say, finally seen the book in print. It's been out for a month now. And publishing that piece in the Irish Times really did feel like a kind of exorcism. It's a very strange thing, writing. Sometimes if you put a lot of your own negative experiences in a piece and you put it out there and then, you know, people have been really enthusiastic about that piece and it's really felt as though I have kind of gotten rid of that burden uh, in a very strange way. So in a funny way, I feel I feel empty. And yet also, yeah, I feel I feel uh, positive about the future. Are you in some way maybe slightly less emotionally invested in White City? Yes, I think I am. I think that one of the things that happened between my first book and my second, which was a 13-year interval, um, is that I, I, I learned how to be a, a professional um, to the extent that anyone ever really kind of can learn to be a professional writer. There is always a degree of capriciousness about it and a degree of uncontrollability. But to the extent that I, I learned how to work as a writer, to report to the desk every day, to meet deadlines, to work with editors, to think about it in a professional, which is to say an unsentimental way. Yeah, in a funny way, I feel much less sentimentally attached to this novel as it goes out into the world. Was there in any way a case that the film adaptation, um, Lenny Abramson's What Richard Did, did did that lengthen the shadow of the first novel for you? I think it did, looking back. Um, Obviously, you know, it's a a dream come true to have your novel turned into a film. And when, you know, you sell film rights, and film rights never really sell for huge amounts of money uh, because they're largely speculative. So you don't really expect the film ever to get made. But this one did, and, and quickly relatively quickly after the book came out. And that was, yeah, it, it, it was a very strange thing because it was not an event that I had planned for or had any sense, um, you know, of how to kind of extract meaning from or how to kind of um, feel in control of the situation. So, yeah, I think in a way I, I was encountering yet another professional world I wasn't uh, prepared to work in, which is the, the film world. And, and it's a much more high-profile world. The stakes are higher. Um, there's more money involved. There are a lot more people involved. Uh, um, and yeah, and you're much more visible. So I think it did. I think it probably did lengthen the, the shadow of expectation that I placed on myself during those years a bit. You've used the phrase naivety dies hard in relation to making a, a job out of obviously what was once a passion. Can you maybe expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I think I, I don't know if I'm unusual actually in in that I want being a writer was my teenage you know dream job, and I think a lot of people would 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 find would say that that's true of them as well, and there is 
attached to any teenage passion, there's a great deal of hope and, and romanticism and, and, and a very powerful idea of yourself as a certain kind of person, you know, in this case, very smart and, and you know, um, perceptive and, 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 you know, talented and all the, you know, these ideas are, are, are very powerful to you when you're a teenager dreaming of being a writer. Um, but it, it can be a risky business to make your teenage daydream your job, your day job, you know, in the sense that it's something you do every day, unsentimentally reporting to the desk. And I think that what I meant by that line, naivety dies hard, was that my naivety about what it meant to be a writer took a very long time to kind of fade away and be replaced by a slightly more hard-headed sense of professionalism. This has been an unusual week in that, uh, as opposed to a lot of authors who've published things over the space of the last three, four, five months, you've physically been back in a bookshop and actually seen your book on the shelves. How did that feel? Uh, it felt amazing, um, not just to, to see my book on the shelves, but to be in a bookshop at all after, I think, eight or nine months since the last time I managed to venture into one. And yeah, that was that was a great moment. I went into Hodges Figgis, which is my, my favourite bookshop in Dublin, and there it was. It was it was on the shelf and I thought yes I, I did it it's it's real because in a very strange way publishing a book during the, the lockdown year it's very much felt like the whole thing has just happened on my phone that it's just something I post about on Twitter <laughs> um, and you know to see it you know, assume it's physical reality yeah in, in a bookshop in my favourite bookshop is, yeah, was absolutely wonderful it's very gratifying yeah, we are coming out of, of a long year, a 13, 14, 15 month long year. Have you been reading more or less yourself over the course of that time? Well, my, my wife and myself, we have two small children, in one case, a very small child. He's only eight weeks old. Um, so having as most anyone who has a toddler around the place will know toddlers and reading don't really go together very well so i i think on balance i've probably read less this year and i've been looking in envy at people on social media posting about all the books they've gotten read this year and i think oh well yeah i mean i've, I've mainly been reading for professional purposes for for teaching and reviewing purposes which is it's not as fun you know it's not it's not reading for pleasure it's reading for work and is there anything in particular that you'd recommend to us? What I read for relaxation when I get a chance is I, I read science fiction. I read the classics of science fiction uh, because I, I, I kind of have a, an informal project to kind of read through all of the Galanche uh, publishers published the, the science fiction masterwork series. And this I'm revealing what a, a massive nerd I am here, but I, that, that, I suppose I'm in good. You're company. amongst friends. Um, Don't worry about it. You're absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I want to. So, yeah, I've been kind of going through all those really classic science fiction novels from the 50s, 60s and 70s, like Philip K. Dick and Ursula Le Guin, Alfred Bester, Joanna Russ. Um, you know, in, in points of stress, I find myself going back uh, to those imaginary worlds, you know, from from the 50s, 60s and 70s. It was a very exciting time in science fiction. And some of that excitement, you can recapture it, I think, if you read those those classics. Yeah, those yellow-covered Gallant uh, series, is it's definitely, if anybody wants to have a dive in, it's a, it's a good place to start. I still have Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness sitting on the shelf, waiting there for about the last two years. I am, I'm going to get to it this year, I swear. Are you going to be uh, appearing virtually or otherwise, maybe that's a bit optimistic, at any uh, festivals across the course of the summer? Um, yeah, I'll be doing a reading with uh, Dira Negrifa, the author of wonderful uh, A Ghost in the Throat that Tram Press published uh, last year. I'll be doing a reading on the 12th of June as part of the Carlo University in Pittsburgh um, Master of Fine Arts program. Now, that sounds like it's kind of restricted, but it's not. It's very much open to the public and I'll be posting about it on my Twitter feed soon. It's been brilliant and lovely to talk to you and congratulations on the new Baba, Kevin Power. Thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thanks a million, Rick. White City by Kevin Power is published by Scribner. 
Hi, this is Kira from the Fingal Library's online book club. And the book I'd like to recommend for you to read this summer is The Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy, first published in 1986. This is an unforgettable family saga set in South Carolina. And I first came across this book in my childhood home at a time when I was just starting to read adult novels. It's a great introduction to Southern literature with its strong sense of the past and importance of family and community. The first line of the book is also one of my favourites. If you enjoy this book, we think you might also like books by John Irving and Mary Alice Munro. Hello, this is Sue from Baffler's Book Club in Cork City. And the book that we would like to recommend is Begotten Not Made. The author, Conal Creedon, is a novelist, playwright and documentary filmmaker. This is a fairy tale for the 21st century, exploring the mystery of blind faith and the magic of belief through two lifelong unrealised love stories. Following the character of Brother Scully, there is an intriguing investigation into the birth and paternity of Jesus. And what has the night when Dana won the Eurovision Song Contest got to do with it all? Well, you will just have to read it. We loved it and Begotten Not Made is available from all good bookshops and online. Next month, we'll see the 10th Bloomsday since James Joyce's works entered the public domain. Africa Connell joins me to discuss the expiry of copyright for novels and what it means for readers. OK, let's start with Joyce Africa. Yeah, so on the 1st of January 2012, all the works of James Joyce entered the public domain, making them freely available to anyone who wanted them. That was very important to Bloomsday celebrants, of course, because up until that point, if you had wanted to use Ulysses, excerpts of Ulysses or for recitations or anything like that, you were subject to copyright. And uh, James Joyce's grandson, Stephen Joyce, was very careful about who he let use it and for what. And 16th of June 2012 was the first year that they were freely able to use it. They celebrated with a flash mob, a Ulysses flash mob all around the city. And I have celebrated by drinking wine in the sun on many occasions uh, since then. (laughs) Tell me, let's do a tiny bit of the heavy lifting here. How do you get copyright in Ireland? Copyright is easy to get in Ireland. So you're not, the author isn't obliged to do anything to protect the work. But if you want to, I thought this was kind of cool. I got it from the Irish Writers' Centre. If you want to actively take steps, what you can do is put your work in an envelope, post it to yourself. When you receive your work back through the post, you don't open it and the postmark acts as your uh, date of your original, which is cool. Also, an alternative way to prove your authorship on a certain date is to register your work with the Copyright Bank as well, of course. And slightly different rules for the EU and the US as well. Stick with us on this. Yes. So uh, generally in the EU and generally is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence, but it's life plus 70 years for copyright. The US is slightly different, slightly more complicated. The same is true, life plus 70 years, except for works published before 1978, which were given extra time. So it's 95 years. That change is referred to by sceptics as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because it kept Steamboat Willie, which was the first iteration of Mickey Mouse under copyright until 2024. So we can all use Mickey Mouse in two years time for what, for three years time, excuse me, for whatever purposes we see fit. And create our own theme parks. Indeed. Um, Public Domain Day. January 1st is important in this, isn't it? It's a huge day in the US because uh, works from 1923 started coming into the public domain in 2019 and continue every year as their copyright lapses. So it's why we're seeing now things like The Great Gatsby come into the public domain 
and A Passage to India and lots of other stuff as well. And that's good for readers. Why exactly? It's really good for readers. Obviously, copyright law exists to protect authors. But what's great for readers is that it means works, when copyright lapses, it means works become way more accessible. So if you're a Kindle person or an ebook person, you'll be able to find the books that you're looking for if they're out of copyright, either for free or for a fraction of the price that you would have paid for them beforehand. There's also an opportunity for writers to play with the source material like it it these all these works are coming from a time where female voices weren't heard very much minority voices weren't really heard at all and it gives writers an opportunity to play with the source material and show different voices as part of the canon we've talked about this on the show previously in this series with regards to to Joseph O'Connor Dracula plays a huge part in this story. It does. Um, Florence Stoker was uh, the manager of Bram Stoker's estate. She's one of the main reasons that Dracula is still a household name. We can thank her for a lot of the modern copyright laws that we have now. Um, In order to achieve copyright for Dracula, they had to stage it as a play. It was apparently a very hastily written and just completely faithful adaptation of the book. It was only performed once, but it was enough to do the job and get them the copyright that they needed. Which meant that when in 1922 films like Nosferatu came out when Prana was trying to release Nosferatu, it led to a huge battle which led to the copyright, the modern copyright laws that we have today. This is the big year for The Great Gatsby. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Yes, there is. There's a lot happening with The Great Gatsby this year. People are very excited about it because it is one of the most iconic American novels of all time. It is now in the public domain, which means we're going to have things like Muppets adaptations. We're going to have zombie adaptations. There is something on the way called The Gay Gatsby by B.A. Baker. And in the tradition of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, The Great Gatsby Undead by Kristen Briggs. And next year, what's uh, what's happening on January 1st? <laughs> we have got Winnie the Pooh coming into the public domain and also The Sun Also Rises. You should always keep an eye on what's coming out on January 1st into the public domain because it leads to all kinds of great things. You see, that discussion on copyright was far more entertaining than you thought it was going to be. <laughs> Afric O'Connell, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Rachel Nohilly and I'm from the Charlie Burns Bookshop Book Club in Galway City. I'd like to recommend two very different books that have been overshadowed by film interpretation. Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote and Dracula by Irish writer Bram Stoker. The name Dracula conjures up images of bloodthirsty vampires presented by various film interpretation that are not true to Stoker's writing. His book is the basis for an entire genre of literature and established many of the conventions of the modern horror novel. The movie image of Audrey Hepburn in her little black dress has become synonymous with Holly Golightly, defined by the male gaze in the film, whereas in the novel she defies tradition as an unconventional young woman who circumvents conservative notions of femininity. I urge you to return to these books. You won't be disappointed. Hello, this is Anne Aitken from the Vine Club in Dublin. And the book we would recommend for you to read this summer is The Ginger Tree by Oswald Wind. It opens in 1903 with Mary Mackenzie, a young Scottish woman, sailing to Peking to marry Richard, a British military attaché. The book is an epic tale of Mary's love, loss and betrayal as she navigates her way as a European woman in China and Japan in the early 1900s. 
Bob Dylan is 80 tomorrow. Mayo journalist and author Leamy McNally has put together a very timely collection entitled Happy Birthday Mr Bob in honour of the occasion and Leamy joins me now. Leamy McNally, welcome to the book show. Thank you very much Rick. I know there might be a, a very obvious answer to this but why is it called Happy Birthday Mr Bob? When Bob was invited to Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday many, many years ago he sang Restless Farewell and after he sang the song he looked over at Sinatra and he said Happy Birthday Mr Frank. So for Bob fans they'll have a good idea of what it's about. Apart from it uh, being his birthday, which is a, a good enough occasion to do something like this, what made you want to put this particular book together? I suppose I always wanted to do something just to say thank you, Bob, because I've been walking with him for a long time and I've enjoyed all his work. So when the 80th was looming, I said, I'm just going to do something. I thought at one stage maybe 80 poets but then I didn't know 80 poets and that was going to be too complicated and then too weighted on one side. So then I just discussed it with one or two people and it kind of emanated then, let's just go out for my own family. So I have some family members in the book, then friends, then acquaintances and then people I didn't know. So we tried to get a broad spectrum of people who would be like a cross-section of a typical Bob Dylan Irish audience. That's why I did it, just to do it and just, I wanted to say thanks and I know there were a lot of other people who just wanted to say thanks to Bob and this is one way of doing it, as someone called it, a book of bouquets for Bob on his birthday. There's a fairly sizeable Bob Dylan, I, I suppose you'd call it a, a community in, in Ireland. You'd see similar faces at, at gigs here and there and in other countries as well. A lot of the people in the book are people I've met throughout the years at Dylan concerts in both Ireland and Britain. People will go not just for one night, they'll go for two nights if it's on, if he's on in Dublin for two nights or whatever, or if he's in London for five nights doing Hammersmith Odeon as he used to do, where we go there or Earl's Court or wherever. So people just go and do the lot and you, you, you see the same faces. There's a kind of a, a core group of people who follow Dylan when they can. Tell me about the lad you met in The Coach and Horses. The Coach and Horses is in London. One of the guys went in to the coach and horses thinking this was the meeting place and he said, oh my God, what's happening here? There's no Dylan heads here. And then he saw one of the beer pumps and there was a sign on it that said, the pump don't work because the vandals took the handle. So then he just shouted to the barman, pointed to the pump and the barman just pointed upstairs saying all the Dylan heads are meeting upstairs. So and that's a guy called Fred Lawton. He has a lovely article about, about just meeting fellow Dylan people. And he says this... The one time in his life he doesn't have to defend Bob Dylan singing or writing or anything else. He just goes in and enjoys meeting Dylan people. And then we all meet again after the show and discuss the versions of the songs, any additional lyrics, any change of lyrics, whatever. You got to meet him here once, is that right? I got to meet him totally by chance. I was to go to America in the summer of 84. I was a student and I discovered Bob had announced he was coming to Slane. I was to fly out on the Saturday. Dylan was coming on the Sunday, so I went into the um, travel agent to change my ticket and I got my ticket changed to Monday morning and as I was checking in Monday morning with a friend of mine who was flying with me, uh, we just looked over and there was Bob checking in with the band on the console just opposite us. So I went over and I had my pen and paper. I asked for his autograph and I congratulated him on the concert the day before and he just said, huh. And that was it. And I marvelled at the size of him, as I said, you know, because when you're looking at somebody on stage, you think they're very tall. But I mean, I'm, I'm average. I'm only 5'9". But he was way smaller than me. You know, a few inches anyway. 
somehow in my head, huh, is a particularly Bob Dylan response to, to oh, yeah. pretty much anything. You, you got on fairly well, though, with the woman who was your travel agent, am I right? The woman, the travel agent, yes, we met later on in Jerusalem, actually. Now, she's a, she's a neighbour's child and she rocked me in the cradle. And as I speak to you now, she's in the room next door here. She's now my wife of 30-something years, yeah. And we've been to many Dylan concerts together. But I'm not crediting Bob Dylan <laughs> with meeting my wife. <laughs> the Dylan fan base it even includes horse owners, I, I believe. This year's Irish Grand well, National. Yeah, this year's Irish Grand National winner was a 150 to 1 outsider called Freewheeling Dylan. When that happened, we were just going to print with the book. And I said, this is too good to lose. So I did a bit of checking and I found the trainer of the horse. And he said, no, we didn't name the horse. We bought in the horse. And they put me on to Shane Donahue in uh, Cavan, a trainer. He said, yeah. That was part of my stable. I'm with a, in partnership with a man called Tim Hailstone from England. I rang Tim. Tim said, yeah, Shane and myself, we're in partnership. We call it the Dylan Partnership. And he says, I picked the names for the horses. And he has about that, about 12 horses. So they named them all Dylan songs or some little link with Dylan. So that was Freewheel and Dylan. And Tim took great pleasure in telling me that on the day of the Grand National, he got Freewheel and Dylan at 340 to 1. You didn't have a few quid on him yourself, did you? I had nothing. Not, didn't even know the horse was running. Didn't even know the race was on. <laughs> uh, I'm fairly sure that there are few living cultural figures who've been more written about than Bob Dylan. There have been countless biographies over the years, critical volumes written about his work. But there's only one actual work written kind of by himself. There's one autobiography, and I'll use that term in quotation marks, Chronicles, Volume 1 from 2004. Well, there's one autobiography, as you say, and put it in uh, whatever you want kind of marks. He, he also did Tarantula way back in the 60s, but we can leave that one out. And I, before I even talk about Chronicles, I'd have to say he also, it's in print, the Bob Dylan, the Nobel Lecture, which I think is really worth. It's a short little book, only 20 pages, 22 pages, but it's really worth a read. It's very, it gives a good context, like an overview of where Dylan is coming from. And I'd safely say it's a lot more autobiographical than Chronicles is. Chronicles is down as an autobiographical uh, book. I, I always compare it to the Bible. People say, is the Bible an historical book? I say it's not, but it has history in it. And it's the same with Dylan's Chronicles, you know. It's just got elements of truth, elements of history, elements of biography. But it's not a clear-cut autobiography at all. And it's very limited, as we know it. It only, it only deals with basically a few uh, specific times in his life. Say, coming to New York in 61, recording his first album in 62, a recording of New Morning in 1970, and then in 1989, Oh Mercy with Daniel Lenoir. So it's only he's only dipping in and out of it. And he says himself that, you know, he takes what he believes are, you know, one or two facts and he creates stories around them. And I suppose that's the best way of describing Chronicles. There are some facts in it and then there are stories created around the facts. But it's a great read. I would highly, highly recommend it to anybody who wants to kind of get an idea of how Dylan's mind moves. I think Chronicles is a riveting, rollicking good read, I have to say. Leamy McNally, it's been brilliant talking to you and thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thanks, Rick. Happy birthday, Mr. Bob, is available from mailbooks.ie, Charlie Burns in Galway, and of course, around Westport. This is Mary Shepherd from Reading Between the Wines Book Club in Newcastle County, Wicklow. The book we recommend this summer is Blackout by Connie Willis. The year is 2060. Research historians have a dangerous job. 
They can time travel to record history as it happens, but must remain passive observers. A team of three is sent to key events in World War II. They each inevitably get involved with events and people, which challenges their perspective and their belief that no historian should interfere with the past. The book resonates today as it deals with the stark reality of loss and death, but also with hope and survival. There's another danger for our trio. The net is chaotic. Time is shifting. Tension builds as they struggle to reach the location they need to get them home. Will they make it? Hi, this is Marlene from the Baileyboro Library Book Club in County Cavan. Having a really hard time limiting myself to just one recommendation, especially since Cavan libraries are currently putting together our summer reading list containing over 40 enticing titles. The book I picked in the end is Make Yourself at Home by Kira Garty. I read and loved her work in the past because her stories always captivate me just as her characters become friends. What more can I ask for from a summer read? Hello, my name is Carla Donnell. I'm in a book club called Bookmarks in Fox Rock, County Dublin. The book we have chosen is All the Lights You Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Marie lives with her dad in Paris and loses her sight at a very young age. Eventually, due to German occupation of Paris, Marie and her dad move to Saint-Malo. The second character, Werner, lives with his sister in Germany. He is bright and has great interest in science and technology, and becomes part of a team to destroy anti-German radio broadcasts. He eventually arrives in Saint-Malo, and so the story unfolds. What follows is a wonderful story about the power of kindness to light the way in the darkness of times. Our libraries and bookstores are now open, so go now and read yourself a masterpiece. And that's it for the book show this week on RTE Radio 1, the podcast available wherever you find yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. Our thanks to all of the book clubs who took part in the series. You can volunteer your own group for a future episode by dropping us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. Huge congratulations as well to Valeria Luiselli, who won the Dublin Literary Award this week for her novel Lost Children Archive. We'll have to wait until the autumn to speak again. If you fancy talking books during the summer, you can come and find me in the Ricochet Book Club on Facebook. Don't forget to check with your local bookshop or library for any of the books featured on the programme.